This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. At a very young age, Roger became a ward of the state and went to live in an orphanage before being sent to a reform school. Roger and the other boys were subjected to unspeakable brutalities. All these years later, their stories can now be told and heard. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called The White House. The boys were sent to a reform school. What happened to them? It was in the state of Florida in the US that a reform school was opened in the year 1900, which went on to operate for 110 years. It was called the Florida State Reform School, and it was a penal institution set up for teenagers who had been convicted of crimes. Its aim was to provide housing, education, employment, and rehabilitation, but it also housed children who were wards of the state. The children who attended the school ranged in age between 10 to 18 years of age. At one point, it had become the largest juvenile reform institution in the U.S. The facility was located on 1,400 acres and didn't have any perimeter fencing. There were two campuses, one for the white students and the other for the colored students. Segregation continued until 1966. After 30 years of being in operation, a new building was erected, which became where corporal punishment was administered. In the early 1900s, it was common for men in adult prisons to be leased out for free labour, which later also extended to children from the reform school. They worked on chain gangs and were shackled together to prevent them from escaping. However, the lease system for adult prisoners was eventually abandoned due to increased public pressure. But this didn't stop the Florida Reform School from continuing to lease out their boys for labour as it proved just too profitable. It wasn't until a law was enacted which officially stopped the practice. Over its 110 years of operation, the Florida Reform School had a large number of boys pass through its doors. One of these boys was Roger Kaiser. Roger lived in California with his mother, his half-sister Linda, and his two-week-old baby brother. But then very suddenly one day, that family was ripped apart. Roger's mother ran off with a man, leaving the three children at home by themselves. Roger was only five years old. The children were alone for four days until the police finally found them. They saw Roger holding his baby brother, who was tragically dead. The police managed to find their mother's husband, who was Roger's stepfather. But instead of going to live with him, Roger and his half-sister went to live with his parents, which made them Roger's step-grandparents. And unlike Linda, who was their actual grandchild, Roger was mistreated from the day that he arrived. They said once, we need to put this stupid little bastard in the centre for retarded children. There were neighbours who saw how badly Roger was mistreated and the police were called. 
Roger then became a ward of the state and went to live in an orphanage. The children there were subjected to harsh beatings and Roger ran away a number of times. He would live on the streets until he was eventually found and returned to the orphanage. The children there were punished for very minor things, but the worst treatment of all came from the matron, who would sexually abuse Roger and then make him masturbate her. And she wasn't the only one. Roger would come to be molested by other teachers and staff at the school. As Roger was considered so unruly, he was eventually sent to the Florida Reform School for Boys. Roger was happy to be leaving the orphanage, as he thought nothing else could be worse than what he had experienced in his short life. But this was to prove so wrong. The reasons for which Roger was sent to the reform school were petty, climbing a tree, going to the toilet without permission, and other such minor infractions. The judge who had sentenced Roger to attend the reform school said, You damn orphan kids are nothing more to me than a herd of caribou. So, Roger arrived at the reform school, but he wasn't alone. His friend David from the orphanage had also been sent there, so at least they had each other. It wasn't long before the other boys warned them to behave and do exactly as they were told. Otherwise, they would find themselves sent to the torture room. This was a white stone building which stood by itself on the grounds of the school. It came to be known as the White House. This is where boys would be severely beaten. The descriptions that the boys gave of the White House gave Roger and David the chills, and although they did their best to obey the rules, it wasn't long before Roger was dragged to the infamous White House without even knowing what he had done wrong. The boys had warned him about a giant leather strap that they used to beat the boys. It was made of two pieces of leather with a piece of sheet metal sewn in between the halves. And it wasn't long before the strap made its appearance and Roger was whipped repeatedly. He only found out later that someone had said that he had used the word shit after he had slipped off the diving board at the pool. So this had been the reason for his beating. At the school, there was a psychologist named Dr. Curry, and one day Roger was led into his office. By this stage in his short life, Roger really had a warped impression of himself. Everyone in his life had led him to believe that he was an incorrigible child who could do no right. So when he went to see the doctor, he was hoping that he would help him to mend his ways. But Roger did not expect the conversation that was to take place. He firstly asked Roger if he ever wore girls' clothing, like panties and a bra, but the questions got worse. He was then asked if he had ever effed his mother, and of course here I'm not going to use the real word. Then he asked him how many times he masturbated each day. Roger pretended that he didn't know what this meant. He then asked Roger to show him how he masturbated. Roger was totally confused. This man was a doctor and was supposed to help people. Roger wondered if the things he was asking him were supposed to help him in some way. Many times Roger was called into the doctor's office and he asked the same questions over and over. Do you masturbate? How many times do you masturbate? Etc. But on one particular visit, it went one step 
Further, he instructed Roger to masturbate himself or else he'd be sent to the torture room. By now, Roger knew better than to protest and carried through his demand. Then he left totally ashamed of himself, but more in a rage with grown-ups. Every adult he had ever known was so cruel. But Roger was at least thankful that he had his good friend David. One day David asked him to go with him as he had something important to show him. He led him to a tree and started digging until he uncovered a small tin box. But before David showed Roger what was inside, he made him promise to keep it a secret. When he took the lid off, Roger saw a skipping rope. At the school, they didn't have any toys. They spent all their time doing chores. But now they had this secret skipping rope, which they played whenever they could, and it would then be buried again. It was just their little secret, and it gave them some temporary joy in a place which most often was full of depravity. Roger's time at the school consisted of not much more than doing menial chores, and they made sure to do them well, or they would find themselves hauled off to the White House. It was a common occurrence for Roger to hear other boys screaming while being beaten and emerging very bloody and bruised. And the reasons for the beatings were most often for only minor things. So everyone was constantly on edge, not knowing when their turn would come. There were even rumours that a rape room existed in the White House, but luckily for Roger, he never got to see it. There were also other rumours about boys being beaten so badly that they died and then were secretly taken away and buried somewhere in the school grounds. One of the jobs that the boys were assigned to do was hospital duty. As well as treating people for illness and injuries, the nurses would also clean up the wounds of boys who had been beaten. So as well as doing general cleaning inside the hospital, Roger also helped to wash and bandage the boys' wounds. Roger recalled one boy in particular who was beaten so badly and actually ended up dying. This greatly affected Roger. He had never seen a dead person. It made him realise just how thin the line was between life and death at the school. But this wasn't the only death at the school. There was also another incident where a boy had supposedly been insolent to the staff. Other boys were then instructed to forcibly push the boy into a tumble dryer in the laundry room, which they had no choice but to obey. The boy ended up dying. Roger remembers seeing a stretcher being wheeled out of the building and a white sheet covering the boy. Another of the jobs the boys had to do was to work in the school's food gardens. He was once taken to a large plot of land where they grew carrots, and after seeing the carrots in the ground, a gruesome thought came to his mind. He remembered thinking, I don't know why it came to mind just then, but I started wondering if these were the fields that I had heard about, the fields where some of the dead boys were buried. I stood there among the rows of carrots, wondering if this could possibly be true. Could I be standing over their bodies right now? Then Roger remembered that one of the staff told the boys to pull out a carrot and take a bite. He hesitated, wondering if the carrot was grown from a part of a dead boy's body. 
Roger would never eat a carrot ever again. Then one day, Roger was told unexpectedly that he would be discharged from the school for his good behaviour. But rather than being happy, Roger didn't want to leave. He wondered where he would go. Would they take him back to the orphanage or back to live with his step-grandparents? The thought of either of these options made him anxious. He wanted to stay at the school. But after he was forced to leave by court order, Roger went from home to home. He again escaped due to bad treatment and ended up living on the streets for some time. After finally being captured, he was too old to return to the reform school and instead was forced to serve in the US Army, from which he was dishonorably discharged after a year. He went back to living on the streets and then at the age of 19, he went to jail for contributing to the delinquency of minors. He then left prison in 1969. Other than a few minor traffic offences, he never broke the law ever again. Then, the next 40 years of his life, Roger travelled around the US working various menial jobs. He married six times, but was never able to develop any real relationships. People told him that he was the most unaffectionate person that they ever met. Roger had only attained schooling to sixth grade, but still managed to become a writer, author and child advocate. Here are his thoughts about his childhood. I suppose we all have memories of our youth, the time we went swimming with our friends and screamed at the top of our lungs as we slid down the water slide, the time we went to see a scary movie. And what about that first tender kiss in the back seat of a car? And how could we forget the high school football games and all the pep rallies we attended? We shouted and yelled with our friends what fun times they were. How great it was to ride down the sidewalk on a bicycle to meet up with friends so that we could ride around the neighbourhood. Well, I never did any of those things, not one single one of them. As I look back, I do not miss any of the things most of you experienced as children. But what I do miss is never having had the opportunity to open a refrigerator door and make a sandwich when I was hungry. I never miss having a shirt and a pair of pants that belonged just to me. Then it was by some miracle that Roger crossed paths with David again, some 40 years later. He had become a police officer and later a private investigator. But sadly, about a year after finding each other again, David was diagnosed with cancer. Roger was at his bedside in the hospital and they talked about whether anyone would have found the tin box. David then died the next day. Roger had kept his promise all those years to keep the box a secret, but now with David gone, he finally revealed the story in his book. Roger would then go on to commit his life to exposing the truth about what happened at the reform school. He met with numerous officials telling his story and pleading for an investigation to be conducted. However, it seemed that the Florida officials were reluctant to expose what was happening in their own jurisdiction. But Roger persisted, setting up a website that documented his story, and over time, more and more men came forward and told their own stories. The website was called The White House Boys, and so shockingly, it wasn't until 
2008, only 12 years ago, that someone finally listened to Roger and the other men. An official at the Department of Juvenile Justice decided to hold a ceremony at the school to officially seal and close the White House building. The school was still in operation at that time and the White House building was still on the premises. Roger attended the ceremony along with four other men. Also in attendance were reporters, television crews, state officials and staff at the school themselves. Each of the men spoke to the crowd, telling their personal experiences of their time at the school. A plaque was placed on the wall of the White House, which read, In memory of the children who passed these doors, we acknowledge their tribulations and offer our hope that they found some measure of peace. May this building stand as a reminder of the need to remain vigilant in protecting our children as we help them seek a brighter future. Everyone then went inside the building one last time before it was sealed, and you can imagine how difficult that must have been for the men. There were many photos taken to document the day, but there was one photo in particular which was so poignant. There is a photo which shows Roger inside the building and he is smoking a cigarette. There is a fascinating but sad story behind this photo, which I will now explain. Roger recalls an incident at the school when he had been outside and one of the staff came up to him and asked, What are you doing? He happened to see a cigarette butt near Roger's foot, and so Roger was accused of smoking a cigarette, which he didn't. Roger pleaded with him that he hadn't. Then he did something quite bizarre. He got a match and lit the butt forcing Roger to smoke it. But because it was so short, he only took one puff before it fell to the ground. No matter how much he denied smoking it, he was still taken to the White House and beaten. So, fast forward to this day in 2008 at the school, and Roger lights up the cigarette and a photo is taken, with a caption that says, My heart pounded as I defiantly smoked this cigarette in one of the White House beating chambers, 50 years after that beating. If you are going to be accused of something you did not do, guess you might as well go ahead and do it. This one's for you, Mr Tidwell. The ceiling of the White House building received widespread media coverage, which resulted in more victims coming forward. And then, only two months later, in 2008, the Governor of Florida directed the Department of Law Enforcement to investigate the allegations brought forward by the men. While this investigation was taking place, Roger wrote and published a book about his experiences at the school. It was called The White House Boys, An American Tragedy. I was able to get access to this book, which I used to tell Roger's story. So, with the investigation in progress and the release of the book, there came a huge media frenzy which finally drew attention to what Roger had been trying to expose for so long. The investigation involved interviewing some 100 people who came forward to give their accounts. As well as the men themselves, there were also relatives of the boys and staff who worked at the school. The people interviewed had varied accounts of what happened. Some were very negative as we would expect, 
but some accounts were also rather positive. The most damning stories were the accounts where men described the severe beatings which resulted in bruising, bleeding and other physical injuries. Some men stated that they were spanked, but that they didn't receive any marks on their bodies. Others only reported seeing bruises and marks on other boys, saying that they had never been spanked or beaten themselves. There were also reports of sexual abuse perpetrated by the staff. However, there were also men who felt that what occurred at the school had positive effects on their lives. Here are some of their quotes. Actually, I enjoyed my stay. I certainly needed the discipline. Mr. Tidwell did for me what my parents never did. In no way did it traumatise my life. It was common sense to behave. No student was sent to the White House without specific cause. They got what they deserved. For those boys who were spanked or beaten, their recollections of the number of strikes varied. Some said that they were only struck a few times, while others said it was as many as 100 times. For those who said that they were beaten, here are their reports of what happened. Some boys said that they could not walk under their own power after having been spanked. One boy said he had to drag his leg for two or three days because of the swelling. Another boy said that pieces of his underwear were embedded into his buttocks and had to be surgically removed. They also reported of their buttocks being blistered to the point that it caused skin blisters, ruptures and bleeding. The investigators heard that there were two instruments which were used in the beatings. The first was a wooden paddle which was later replaced by the leather strap. Due to the weight of the strap, it was believed that metal must have been sewn inside of it. The investigators also interviewed former staff members at the school whose recollections of what happened varied greatly. Some concurred that a leather strap was used, but that it didn't have metal inside it. The number of strikes was said to be mostly less than 10, but could be up to 15. They also said that the boys who had supposedly received 100 strikes, that this was totally false. Some staff did report seeing marks on boys, while others said they didn't see any marks. As for the bleeding, some verified that they did see boys with blood on their clothes. So just as with the boys themselves, the staff recollections also varied greatly. Now, let's look at the allegations of sexual abuse at the school. One particular man testified that he was held down by Mr. Tidwell and another staff member, but could not definitely say that he was sexually assaulted, as he didn't have any signs on his body. He stated, I'm sure they did something, but I don't really know what. Another man also said he was sexually abused by Mr. Tidwell, but over several interviews, his testimony changed. Others said that they had been abused by fellow students and staff members, but said they couldn't identify who they were. As for the psychologist, Dr. Curry, there were those who had similar stories to Roger about his inappropriate behaviour, but there was no report of actual sexual contact. The people who were interviewed were also asked to carefully describe the inside of the White House. 
it was widely reported that the walls contained blood from the beatings. The blood was referenced many times by Roger in his book. A forensic examination was conducted of the walls in the many rooms, with the results being negative. From all the testimony given during the investigation, there were four staff members whose names came up consistently as being the perpetrators of the physical and sexual abuse. At the time of the investigation, three of the men were deceased. However, Mr Tidwell was still alive. As a result of the allegations brought against him, he hired a lawyer and gave a statement which consisted of the following. He admitted that he both witnessed and gave spankings, but that they were always in the presence of a second person who was either the school director or superintendent. The spankings were documented in written disciplinary reports. However, these reports were never found and were believed to have been destroyed as per the statutory guidelines. He concurred that first a wooden paddle was used, which was later replaced by a leather strap, but denied that it contained metal. He stated they received six to eight strikes, but no more than ten. He also said that he never witnessed blood, only blue or pink marks on the boys, and that he never physically or sexually abused any boys. The investigation concluded that the school did use corporal punishment and that all the testimony verified that a paddle and strap had been used. However, there were discrepancies in the number and severity of spankings. There was also no proof that would support or refute the physical and sexual abuse. Therefore, no criminal charges were ever pursued. This report was completed in January 2010. It was then, about a year later, that a second investigation was conducted by the US Department of Justice. The school had failed a state inspection and was therefore scrutinised more closely. The historic abuse was confirmed, but also there were recent allegations of abuse and violence that were also confirmed. Even before the final report was delivered, state authorities decided to close the school permanently in 2011. The reason cited was budgetary limitations. However, it seems to me that they were just getting too much heat and that's why they closed. The abuse that was reported at the school was not the first time that the practices at the school had come under scrutiny. Only two years after the school opened in 1901, an inspection found that the students were kept in leg irons. Subsequent inspections found overcrowding, poor conditions and a culture of violence and abuse. A number of official investigations were conducted, but it seems that nothing came of these. So by the time Roger unearthed his findings, it was clear that the facility had issues right from the start, but it continued to operate. If the proper action had been taken earlier, perhaps what Roger and the other boys endured during the 1950s and 1960s could have been prevented. Now, you may be thinking that this story is over. However, while I was researching the story, it took quite an unexpected turn, which we will now get into. As already mentioned, Roger embarked on a campaign 
to expose the truth of the school. More and more men came forward. He established an organization called the White House Boys Organization. He documented the men's stories on his website and wrote a book about his personal experience. However, the members of the organization began to splinter. It seems that disagreements occurred between various members, and eventually some of the men left Roger's group and established their own organization and created a separate website. I will now go into Roger's account of what happened. In essence, Roger believed that the other group tried to take advantage of and credit for what he had exposed about the school. They accused Roger of pursuing the investigation into the school for his own financial gain and recognition. After Roger's book was published and the media exposure it gained, he then filed a lawsuit against the state. At first, all of the men in the group agreed with Roger's version of events in his book. However, Roger felt that some of the men then began enhancing and exaggerating their own stories. They claimed that hundreds of boys went missing, presumed killed by the staff, that boys were burned in the incinerator, that their body parts were seen in the pig troughs, and that rapes were a common occurrence. Stories also began about multiple graves being dug to bury the boys who died after beatings. One man stated, when the truth is finally known about what happened at the school, it will make the Holocaust look trivial. Roger then began publicly discrediting these men, saying that they were totally exaggerating what happened. The splinter group was headed by a man named Jerry Cooper. Roger felt that he was only interested in having himself at the centre of media reports. Roger published another book highlighting what he saw as the gross exaggerations. Cooper then threatened to sue the book publisher if they didn't remove Roger's book from sale. Roger was also informed that he would be immediately removed from the pending lawsuit. He suspected this was because his version of the truth wasn't sensational enough. So this meant it would affect the amount of money being sought through the lawsuit. Roger therefore felt it became about money and not the truth. More and more, Cooper tried to discredit Roger, even claiming that he had co-authored his book and that he was the one who set up the White House Boys organization. Roger was quoted as saying, As these men began coming together some eight years ago, this bunch was supposed to organize together as a brotherhood, but instead it has become a bunch of people stabbing each other in the backs and trying to get their 15 minutes of fame at the cost of anything and everything, including their so-called brothers. I do feel there is enough substantial and circumstantial evidence to support the claims of abuse by the men and that lying or exaggerating the truth is not necessary in order to receive justice and or to be compensated for the abuses suffered by the men. So, with these accusations of not being truthful, Cooper decided to settle the matter by undergoing a voluntary lie detector test. So how do you think he went? Well, he actually passed. Now, we know that lie detector tests are not foolproof and can't be submitted as evidence in court. 
but it just seems to me that this was a case of the boys all having different experiences. Some got whipped more than others, although to me, 100 times does seem pretty excessive. And when you're going through that experience of being beaten, I doubt that you're actually counting. So it ends up being just a guess, but I guess we'll really never know. But it's just so sad that it had come to that. I think that they could have achieved so much more by working together. So what happened with the lawsuit? Sadly, it was dismissed because the statute of limitations had run out for such a lawsuit. Then in 2012, a bill was introduced in the Florida legislature to provide compensation to victims of abuse at the school, but sadly, this failed to pass. As we have seen, there were instances of boys dying at the school and much speculation that they were buried somewhere in the grounds. I read that there actually was a cemetery at the school and that boys had been buried there as a result of death by illness, with one example being given of the 1918 Spanish flu. Other boys were said to have died during a fire which engulfed one of the buildings. Roger never mentioned the cemetery, so perhaps it was somewhere well away from the main part of the school. After all, the school was on a property of 1,400 acres, so it's quite possible it could have been there, but it was just much further away. But the interesting part about these deaths was that the graves were all unmarked. Just after the school was finally closed in 2011, the state authorised a forensic team to survey the school grounds and they found 55 burial sites, but most were actually outside of the cemetery. Only 13 bodies were found within the cemetery grounds and the rest of the graves were outside in the woods, including under a roadway, under a bush and a large mulberry tree. Of the 55 bodies found, this was almost twice the number of deaths that the school had officially reported, which was 32. Although the graves are unmarked, there are 32 very crude white crosses which can be seen in the cemetery. They look like they're made from white plastic plumbing pipes. So although there are 32 of these crosses, only 13 bodies were actually found there. They also uncovered that there were around 100 deaths that had occurred at the school over its history. Now, normally prisons, hospitals and other institutions would have records of all burial locations. However, this wasn't the case at the school, which was noted as being very much against protocols. They used ground-penetrating radar to find where the bodies were buried. Given the reports that many of the deaths were caused through the beatings, the bodies needed to be exhumed in order to determine cause of death. However, the law required that bodies to be exhumed could only be done so through the request of family members. But it was difficult to trace families, especially for those who had died so long ago. The process to identify the bodies was a very difficult and lengthy undertaking. By 2016, just four years ago, they were able to make seven conclusive DNA matches. Then, only last year, 
in 2019, another 27 suspected graves were identified by ground-penetrating radar and identification is ongoing. Also last year, 40 of the unidentified bodies were finally laid to rest in a special ceremony which was attended by some of the White House boys. Each grave was given a unique identification number in case they can be identified in the future and their families can then be notified. Here is an audio clip of what some of the men had to say who were there and Jerry Cooper is the third voice that you will hear. I've gotten closure, uh, not 100%, but I'm there. I'm getting closer. Now we got 40 in the ground now that we don't have to worry about anymore. Very easily could have been one of these kids, but God spared me. I'm a survivor, and uh, I wish they had have been too. As we saw, the investigations into the alleged abuse could not be positively confirmed or refuted. However, in 2017, the Florida State Legislature held a formal ceremony to apologise to two dozen survivors. Then, a year later in 2018, bills were being considered for compensation, so perhaps there is more to come in this story. In relation to the disputes between Roger and Jerry Cooper, I wasn't able to find any information about Jerry's side to the story regarding the split in the group. But I have found many news articles about Jerry continuing his work with the White House boys. Roger has gone on to write a number of books, and I also found his Facebook page, which has had some recent posts, so he is also still alive. So I thought we would finish the story by hearing from some of the men themselves. In this audio, you will hear Roger, who is the third speaker. Take a listen. What it did was it turned me black and blue, and then you had pinholes of blood all over you because of the force of the whip would, it caused the skin to explode at some point. Now, that was just 35 lashes. If you ran, you got 100. And 100 lashes is beyond my imagination to this day. And when they're hitting you on the same spot and they've, you know, already broken the skin or bruised you, you know, you're in some serious pain. And, uh, I went out of there in shock. I know, you know, it was just uh, looking back on it, it's just uh, like a nightmare. You know, you just can't imagine that people would do that. There's personally to me nothing been done worse. They destroyed my childhood. I have, they, I've been able to cauterize the wound of what they've done to me. But it's done something to me that I can never get over. I just, I can't get over this. This is beyond, they stole, it's as if they raped me. You know, I look at my grandchildren and I was about their age when all this was happening to me, when it all started. And I think, how could anybody do that to me? How could anybody do that to any child? How could they do it, you know? And, you know, when, when you inflict that much pain and brutality on a child, they're traumatized for life. 
period. You know, it's irreversible, and you're basically what you're creating is a mini monster. And to finish, here is a final quote from Roger. Because of the way you treated me as a young boy, I lived much of my life alone. But for some strange reason, you have made me stronger than most people I know. The brutality you bestowed upon me as a child has given me a very compassionate heart. For a long time, I did not know how to love, how to laugh, how to smile, how to joke, how to fool around. But because you taught me how to be unhappy, I am able to recognize how important it is to be happy now that I've learned how. And at the end of the episode, you will hear part of a song that was written about the White House Boys by a band called Dallium. And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote. He who opens a school door closes a prison door. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple.